Thank you all for leading us in that time this evening. Those definitely were some songs that some I had not heard, at least in a long time. But I definitely do remember being young, singing those at my home church. So it was good to be able to sing those songs uh, together in worship this evening. If you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Ephesians this evening. Uh, we're going to continue uh, in our study in Ephesians. Uh, over the past couple weeks, we have been uh, looking at chapter 2, which is uh, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. Uh, because there in Ephesians chapter 2, we get uh, one of the clearest explanations of the gospel. Uh, we get this beautiful picture that Paul writes about how we were dead in our transgressions, dead in our trespasses and sin, and yet in love, the, the love and the richness of the grace uh, that Christ has poured out on us, we have been raised, we've been made alive, uh, and seated with him in the heavenly places that Paul talks about. And, and so this is, this is why we're memorizing Ephesians chapter 2 as a church, because it is so rich uh, in explaining the gospel to us. So I hope that's something that you're doing, that you're working through uh, those couple verses a week that we're doing so that you can memorize Ephesians uh, chapter 2. But anyway, Paul has just finished here in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, and this is where we're picking up uh, this evening, Ephesians uh, chapter 3. And so he's been going through this Ephesians chapter 2, speaking to this church that he loves very dearly. This isn't a, a group of people that he's writing to uh, that he does not know. He's spent a couple of years here with the, the church at Ephesus. He's ministered to them. He, he knows them. He's served alongside them. He's, he's led them. And so when he begins to, to think about everything that he has written in chapter 2 and how he has seen that actually played out in their lives. And he is thinking about specific people and no specific people who have gone from being dead in their sins, being made alive in Christ, these Gentiles who have heard the gospel and trusted in Christ and they've been brought into the covenants and they've been built up with the Jews into this, into this one building in Christ. He rejoices at this happening. And so as he thinks about this, he immediately goes in to prayer. Prayer for this beloved group of people who he loves so much, which is, which is where we pick up in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verse 1. So let's start right there as Paul begins to pray. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... Now, this is how he starts out his prayer, but something happens before he goes on in the rest of his prayer. Uh, ha have, you ever, have you ever been praying, and as you're starting praying, something else pops into your mind, and you, you get sidetracked? You know, praying for Peru. You know, we're, we're praying for the team, and we're praying for them to be safe in their travels, and your mind immediately jumps to them flying on a plane. You're praying for safety uh, as they fly. But then, in your mind, the corner of your mind, you start thinking, it's been a while since I've flown on a plane. And then you start thinking, wouldn't it be great to fly to Hawaii? And I would love to be laying on the beach right now. What would it be like just to be laying on the beach? I would love to have a week's vacation in Hawaii. And somehow you've gone from praying for the team going to Peru, and somehow you end up laying on a beach in Hawaii. Well, Paul does kind of a, a theological holy version of that here in this passage. Paul starts out getting ready to launch into a prayer for this, for this people that he loves. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, 
And then everything that comes in verses 12 through 13 is, or verses 2 through 13 are kind of a, a digression uh, that Paul does. And so he, then he picks up his prayer in verse 14. Listen to verse 1. For this reason, I. Then verse 14, for this reason, I. And so it's kind of like he picks up his prayer, his train of thought there in verse 14. And so tonight we're going to look at what basically amounts to Paul's uh, digression, his sidetrack, uh, if you will. And what I want you to see this evening, this, this is actually a, a Holy, Holy Spirit-inspired digression that Paul goes on that is important for me and you, that we get rich theological truth from this, and I think important life application for us from this digression that Paul goes on. And so tonight, what I want us to do is I want us to just walk step-by-step step through this passage. And after we walk through the passage, I want us to take a step back and then ask some questions about the passage that will help apply it to our lives so we can see what do we need to take away from this passage. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to start by going through verses 1 through 7 to see how Paul tells us and explains to us that he has been made a steward of a mystery. So let's pick up verse 1 and go through verse 7 with me. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. So Paul starts beginning here explaining that he is a steward. Evidently, there were some people who were reading this letter who wouldn't be familiar with Paul's circumstance. Right now, he says in verse 1 that he is a prisoner. Uh, and so this is probably a letter that, that went more, more to more churches than just the church at Ephesus, probably a circular letter that was centered around, uh, sent around. And so Paul is explaining to some of those people uh, his circumstances, that he's in chains, he's in prison uh, right now, probably in Rome. Uh, and so he explains to them, hey, I am a prisoner right now. And then he goes on to explain to them that, that he has been made a steward. As the reason that Paul is in prison is because he has been given a particular stewardship. Now, you probably know a steward is someone who holds something that, that is valuable. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, all right, I'm going to give you a little test here uh, that, that I hope a lot of people will be able to answer. How many, how many of you have ever read the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Please, a few. All right, who's, all right, who's at least seen some of the movies? All right, please. Go out, go to the library, pick this up. It's a great series. You need to read it. It's one of my challenges, perpetually encouraged like people like Todd, and you know, read. It's good. Fiction's a good thing, uh, especially by J.R. Tolkien. Uh, <coughs> anyway, in, if you've seen the movies uh, or if you've read the books, there, there's a kingdom called Gondor. And, and in this kingdom, it's ruled by a steward. Because what happened was, was hundreds of years in the past, uh, there was the last king in the line of kings, and he was killed in battle. Uh, and so in, instead of a king ruling, since there was no one in that line, there's just been a steward who ruled Gondor. And, and so it was the steward's responsibility to rule justly and to rule rightly. 
he was given this task, this responsibility to carry out. And he was to wait and do this until the true heir could come and a true king could come. And so a steward holds something that is a, a vast responsibility, but is not his personally. And, and so Paul says that he is a steward. He's been made a steward. He's been given something. It's not his. It doesn't belong to him. But he has been made a steward of it. And the thing that he has been made a steward of is a mystery. Listen to what he writes. He said in verse 2, he says that he's been given the stewardship of God's grace, uh, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. He's been made a steward of a mystery by revelation. It's probably the revelation he's talking about here uh, is on the road to Damascus. Paul's on the road to Damascus. He sees the risen Lord, and uh, his life is forever changed. And so at that time, he's given a stewardship of a mystery. And so now, when, whenever we hear the word mystery, we tend to hear mystery uh, in our common, uh, our cultural context of today. And, and so what I think of when I hear mysteries, I think of like a murder mystery or something like that. You, you read a book, and it has all these clues that you figure out who did it. Uh, and so you, you, you think about uh, you know, all these different murder mystery movies or murdery mis- murder mystery books, and you have all the clues that you work out until you finally figure out, this is the guy. But that's not the idea of mystery uh, in the New Testament. Mystery isn't something where you get clues and try to figure something out. Instead, mystery in the New Testament is something that was once concealed but now is revealed. And so listen to how, uh, listen to how Paul describes this uh, as he goes on. And he says, verse 4, By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my, my, my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. It wasn't made known. It was, it was concealed in the past, but has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets uh, in the Spirit. So we have Paul here being a steward. He's been in chains because he's a steward, and he's a steward of this mystery. And now the mystery that has been revealed is what he says here in verse 6. The mystery is, to be specific, he says, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery that he's been given stewardship of is that the Gentiles be included into the covenants of promise, that they would be brought into the kingdom, and that they were going to have Jews and Gentiles together as joint heirs. And so basically, the mystery that Paul has been given a stewardship of is the gospel. Everything that he's been writing here in chapter 2, he has been given a stewardship of this. And so the Gentiles who were once excluded, they're now brought in. The wall that was separating them has been torn down. Those who are far off, as Ephesians 2 says, they've been brought near. Christ has become the peace between the two groups, as Ephesians 2 says. So the Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but God has brought them through Christ and made them into fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. So we have a mystery. Paul's given a stewardship of the, is the gospel. And so Paul writing this in Ephesians chapter 2, begins to launch out into a prayer thinking about how he's been given this amazing stewardship of the gospel. That these people that he know in Ephesus have come to Christ and have been brought into fellowship with him, into the kingdom, even though they were once excluded. Everyone can now know Christ. And so Paul is absolutely astounded that he has this privilege. 
but he recognizes that having this stewardship of the mystery of the gospel also means that he has a commission to make the good news of Christ known. Listen to verse 8. This is where we're going to see a commission that he has. Starting in verse 8. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Paul says he has a commission that comes with the revelation. And so we see here, he recognizes that as he has this commission, he's been given this mystery, he says that he's completely undeserving of it. Verse 8, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. It's hard to translate this in English from the Greek because the way the Greek is written, it's, it just doesn't flow well into English. It's like he's saying that he is, he is the leaster than anyone else or the leastest of all people. Paul writes it here so that the readers understand he, he is seeing himself as less than anybody else. And I don't think Paul is trying to be falsely humble here. I think what's happening is Paul is remembering back to his life before Christ. I think what Paul is doing is, is he is remembering those things that he did in which he was against the church of God. You remember how he was standing, giving approval as Stephen was being stoned. As, as the Jewish mob took Stephen away and, and killed him, there was Paul standing, giving approval of what was happening. And I think what he's doing is he's remembering that, and he's remembering how he traveled seeking Christians to put in jail and seeking Christians that may, they might be put to death. And so Paul is remembering how he opposed the gospel and remembering how he opposed the church, and he says, how can it be that I have this privilege? I am leaster. I am the leastest of all of the people. How can I be given this great privilege? And so he, he begins to think about this calling. He begins to think about the privilege that he has in being a steward of the gospel and what that means in, in advancing the gospel, the commission that he's been given. And so he begins describing this to us. And here's where I think we get some rich picture, rich theology uh, that Paul pours out uh, here on the pages. And he, he describes this, this privilege that he has in, in two ways. In first way, in verse 9, he, he describes it as preaching the unfathomable riches of Christ. See, the mystery that he has, the mystery of the gospel, is what he calls unfathomable riches. Everything that we see described in Ephesians chapter 2, unfathomable riches. That we would be dead, brought to life in Christ. Unfathomable. That we who are separated, been brought near, words cannot describe how that can possibly happen. That we who were at enmity with Christ, who've been raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places now, words cannot describe the riches of that truth. And so Paul says he's been given this privilege of this mystery that he has words that just cannot describe 
the privilege that he has in proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. It's unfathomable riches. The second, he also describes this, this mystery, this privilege that he has of proclaiming the mystery, as the manifold wisdom of God. And this is what he, uh, this is what he writes uh, in verse 10. That he's bringing to light the mystery, verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. There's, there's a word picture here that I want you to get. Manifold is a word that means many-colored. So saying the, the many-colored wisdom of God. Uh, John Piper puts it this way. Picture in your mind a great, wise painter painting on a huge canvas with many brushes. The painter is God, so you can't picture him. He's invisible. But he intends for his painting to be the visible display of his wisdom. He knows people can't see him, but he wants his wisdom to be seen and admired. His canvas is huge. It's the size of the created universe. And God is painting with thousands and thousands of colors and shades and textures. A picture as big as the universe and as old as creation and as lasting as eternity. A picture we call history, with the central drama being the preparation, salvation, and formation of the church of Jesus Christ. And he is using thousands of different brushes, most of them very ordinary and very small, because every minute detail is crucial in this painting to display the wisdom of the painter. The manifold wisdom of God is that the gospel has gone forth. The manifold wisdom of God is that he has taken people who are dead in their sins and he has made them alive through Christ. This is the multicolored wisdom of God that is unfathomable riches to us that Paul says he has the privilege of being a steward of. And so here's the, the thing that I think we need to focus on here in this passage. And so in verse 10, this manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. This wisdom is displayed, it's made known as people are brought from death to life, brought into the church of God, and as the church goes out and proclaims this truth to a world that needs to hear it. This is how that manifold wisdom of God is displayed, that picture is displayed through all the universe. And here's something that's amazing. That this manifold wisdom is displayed to a certain group. Look in verse 10. So the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now, who are, who are these rulers and authorities? These are not people. When he's describing here these rulers, these authorities in the heavenly places, I don't think he's talking about people, human beings. But instead, what he's talking about are heavenly beings. Remember how we talked this morning about all the, the innumerable heavenly beings, that we've got seraphim, we've got cherubim, we've got uh, the elders, we've got angels, we've got all these different creatures these living beings in heaven that God has created. And what we see happening here is that the, the manifold wisdom is, is displayed through the church. The heavenly beings look down, staring in amazement at the manifold wisdom of God. That God has seen fit to take sinners and to redeem them and to grant them life in Christ. Here's something we need to get. Angels long to look into this truth. Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 1, as to this salvation, 
the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that followed. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and those things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. As to this salvation, salvation are things into which angels long to look. Angels long to look down and see salvation. And the reason for that is because salvation is not open to angels. Nowhere in Scripture do we see the redemption of angels. And so they long to look down upon how God has redeemed people for himself. How those who are made in the image of God but turned away from him, how he would come, take on flesh, and die for them so that they can go from being turned away from him, enmity with him, raised up into life in Christ, and how they can be raised, eventually seated with Christ in the heavenly places. They long to look on this glorious truth. And Paul says, I have the unfathomable riches of God in the gospel. And I have this amazing privilege to be able to proclaim it. Angels long to look down upon this. And what a great stewardship, what a commission that I have. And so when Paul goes through this, he says to the, to the Ephesians there at the end of verse 13, he said, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. It is my privilege to be in prison, in chains, for your sake, for your glory. It is my privilege, so don't lose heart that I am suffering for your sake. I've been made a steward of something that is unfathomable. What a commission, what a privilege I have. All right, so, so, so that, that's the picture that we're getting here in, in this passage. And, and what I want us to do now is, is take a step back from it. Take a step back from this passage because nowhere in here does Paul specifically tell us anything to do. Paul doesn't say, now, now go do this in light of me being a steward. Go do this in regard to the mystery. And so what I, was, I want us to do is I want us to take a step back and just ask a few questions about this text that will help us figure out what, is, what does this mean to us. And so here's where you can have audience participation time. So feel free to throw out your answers to the questions if you so dare. All right, so let's, let's think about some of the themes that are in here. We, we obviously have a theme of Paul's stewardship. So question, question number one, what has, been, what has Paul been made a steward of? Yeah, the gospel, this mystery that he's been given, which, which we boil down to say the gospel. Both Jews and Gentiles can have salvation through Christ. So now, here, here's the next question. Is this stewardship given only to Paul as an apostle? In, in other words, do only apostles get this stewardship uh, of the mystery of the gospel? No, no, obviously not. We see it all throughout the New Testament, that we have this treasure in jars of clay. We have the gospel. We have been made ambassadors of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20. And, and so obviously, we have this stewardship as well. And Paul looks at this stewardship as something that's to be given away. Look in verse, uh, in verse um, 2 of chapter 3 there. He said, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which has been given to me for you. I have this stewardship, but it's been given to me for you. 
And so he looks at his stewardship as something that, that's to be given away. And so here's what I want us to understand. If we've been given the stewardship of the gospel, then we have also likewise been given a commission to take and proclaim the gospel. Look again, verse 10. How is the manifold wisdom of God displayed? Manifold wisdom of God is displayed, is made known through who? Through the church. Manifold wisdom of God is displayed, it's made known through the church. As the church is saved, as as the church goes out and proclaims the truth. And so I think the question that we need to come back to now and ask ourselves is, how are we using the stewardship that God has given to us? What kind of stewards are we being of the mystery that has been made known and been proclaimed there in Ephesians chapter 2? What are you doing with the treasure of the gospel? So, so I, think, I think that's the first real clear application that comes from this. And, and I, I, think there, I think there are a number of these, but, but one other one I want us to focus on comes, comes from one of the themes here. Obviously, Paul's dealing with him, himself being a, a prisoner here. And he's giving this, this aside, this uh, digression, if you will, because he's a prisoner and he wants them to understand his situation. And so I, I think we can ask maybe a few questions to help us get at how does this apply to us today. So question number one, and I want to warn you, don't answer this yet because I have a lot of stuff, other stuff to add to it. All right, question number one, of whom was Paul a prisoner? All right, don't answer. I've got stuff to add. Of whom was Paul a prisoner? All right, I want you to know, how did Paul get into prison from this point? All right, Acts 21, Paul had been preaching in Jerusalem. He's, he's out, he's proclaiming Christ, and then when he begins to proclaim that, uh, that the gospel is open to Gentiles, that Gentiles are now welcomed into the kingdom, mob comes and takes him, uh, and he is, uh, he's attacked. Jewish leaders uh, bring him before uh, their council. Uh, there's a plot that's formed, 40 people at least, in a plot to take Paul's life. Uh, word leaks out about this plot, and so Paul is transferred to a prison in Caesarea. He, he spends a, a couple years there. He's, he's imprisoned uh, by the governor, Felix. After a couple years, Felix is succeeded uh, by another man by the name of Festus. And then at a trial before Festus, Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. I want to go see Caesar. So then he talks to a guy by the name of King Agrippa, and eventually he's taken to Rome where he is waiting a uh, trial by Caesar. So all, all that being said, who imprisoned Paul? Who was he in prison under? Uh, was, it, was it the Jews? Was, was it the Roman soldiers? Was it Felix? Was it Festus? Was it King Agrippa? Was it Caesar? Or was it any number of other people? All right, look at verse 1. Who does Paul say he was a prisoner of? Of Christ Jesus. But it was these people who we just mentioned who put him in prison, who held him there. It was, it was the Jews. It was the Roman governors. It was he being held in uh, by, the, uh, by the Roman centurions or the guards or whoever it was. So how can he say now that he is a prisoner of Paul? I think the answer is because Paul is convinced that everything that happens in his life is under the lordship of Christ. There is nothing that happens in his life that is outside of God's sovereign control. So he can look and he can see his circumstances and he can say, 
I am a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think what we have here is a case study of exactly what we talked about this morning. We saw the, the Lord God upon his throne, and we see an angel holding out a scroll. Who is worthy to take this scroll and open its seals? And we see the Lion of Judah, the Lion, coming before. And then we see a lamb looking as if slain is the lamb who is worthy to open those scrolls, to open the seals of the scroll. And so this lamb who is slain, who has bought redemption for people, he is the one who holds in his hand all of history. And so Paul looks and knows that truth and says, I am not a prisoner of Rome. I am a prisoner only because I am standing under the absolute total sovereignty of God. And so what has happened in my life is not outside his control. It is not outside his authority and his lordship. I am here because the Lord has brought this for his good purpose and for his glory. Nothing. Nothing outside the sovereignty of God. So Paul can say, I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, question number three. Paul is a prisoner of Christ. According to verse 13, why is he a prisoner? Look at verse 13. Why is he a prisoner? Why does he ask them to to not lose heart? What are his tribulations for? For their glory. Paul says, don't lose heart at my tribulations because my tribulations, the imprisonment, everything I'm going through is for your glory. This seems like a strange thing Paul say. What does he mean? For your glory. And I think what Paul is, is saying here is that the reason that he's preaching that God is that, that he is suffering for their glory is that he is saying that he is concerned that he is proclaiming the gospel for their eternal glory. So in other words, that he is suffering that they may have eternal glory with the Lord. And so what we look back on here is I think what we're seeing is that Paul is in jail because his concern for their eternal state is greater than his concern for his present comfort. Paul's concern for their eternal destiny is greater than his own concern for his own personal comfort in his life. I think that's what we talked about this morning, too. Paul looks at his chains and he says, It is worth it for the sake of the glory of Christ and for your salvation. And and so tonight, there, there are basically two thoughts I want to leave you with. First of all, you've been given a stewardship. If you are in Christ, if you have been redeemed by the Lamb, then you have been granted a stewardship. And it's a stewardship of the greatest truth that has ever been known. It's a stewardship that comes with a commission. We know this truth. Second, our King is the sovereign who holds all of history in his hand. And so because of that, we can carry out the stewardship with boldness. You can be bold in proclaiming the stewardship that you have as you go to your work. You can be bold in that as you deal with your family. You can bold in that with your neighbors because you are serving the one who has all of history in his hands. We can boldly go to Peru because we know that only what God has ordained will happen. 
We can boldly go to dangerous places, drive dangerous roads, because we will only die if it has so been ordained and allowed by God. We can take the gospel to dangerous places around the world because we know that our lives are held in his hand. And only that which God allows, only that which God has ordained will happen. This is the freedom that comes when we recognize the sovereignty of the God who we serve. That we're able to boldly take this privilege that we have, this stewardship that we've been given, and we can do it without reserve. Because we know he's in control. He has it all in his hands. What can man do to me? What can happen to me? It is God who is in control. This is a freeing thought. I think this is why Paul can be there in chains and he says, don't lose heart at my tribulations because they are for your glory. Look, who's the one who's in control? I am the prisoner of Christ, not Rome. What can man do to me? It's just Caesar. I serve God. I'm under his authority as king, not under Caesar. And so I, I think, I think that we can be grateful that, that Paul took this Holy Spirit-inspired digression from his prayer so that we can hear this truth. So I pray that you will be encouraged, that you will be edified, and that you and I will see the great truth that we have and the stewardship that comes with that. Let's pray. Father, it is our, it is our joy to be able to read your word, and it's our privilege to be made stewards of uh, this mystery, and I ask, Lord, that you will help us to be faithful stewards of it. God, help us to trust in you that you are the God who reigns, and that no matter what comes, you are on your throne. And I pray, Father, that that truth will encourage us and will embolden us to follow you no matter what, to serve you with all that we are. Pray, Father, that you will be glorified in us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.